Hello, everybody. Justin Halverson here. Got another fantastic episode of the WMA podcast for you. So myself and fellow co-hosts Costa and Justin Jackson all sat down with the legend himself, Michael Kitsis, this week. Um, you guys might know Michael from his popular podcast, the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, his blog, The Nerds I View, or from the many things he's co-founded, including the XY Planning Network. Uh, when Justin Jackson and I had first started this podcast about nine months ago, we were joking around like, hey, what if we got some big people, some big uh, titans of the industry like Michael Kitsis and Ben Carlson on the show. But, um, you know, here we are just halfway through season two and we've got him on the show. So one other thing I want to mention real quick, I had some audio issues at the very beginning with myself. I didn't realize I was having some microphone issues. So I apologize. Don't worry. Everybody else sounds great, though. So, without further ado, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everybody, to the MSU WMA podcast. We've got a very special guest here today. Um, we're here with the legend himself, uh, Michael Kitsis. Michael, thank you so much for being here. Uh, my pleasure, Justin. Appreciate the opportunity to come and join you. Uh, we're, we're so excited to have you. When we started this podcast, um, the random idea was, what if we got the Michael Kitsis on? Michael Kitsis on, and um, look where we are today. We're, we're so excited about that. So what I want to start off, just a little bit of your background. Um, doing my homework here, I know that you went into a deep dive on your own podcast, episode 200 of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. But um, for anybody who hasn't heard that, we're going to for sure leave it in the show notes. But can you give us just a brief intro? Um, you know, where, where'd you start and where are you today? Yeah, uh, you started straight out of college. Uh, myself, I, I'm like, I guess a lot of people listening to the, the podcast here, you know, when I came out of school 20 plus years ago, there were almost no financial planning programs. So I didn't come out of financial planning. I, I was a psychology major, theater minor, pre-med student. And the only thing I figured out by graduation was that I did not want to do psychology, theater or medicine. So, you know, graduated from college, no clue what I wanted to do. Uh, got a, a pitch from a major life insurance company to come be a financial advisor with them. That sounded neat, like, you know, finance money stuff was sort of interesting, supposed to have great opportunity. This sounds awesome. Off we went. And so literally, like, I graduated Memorial Day weekend. Graduation was Saturday. I packed up everything I owned on Sunday. I drove home on Memorial Day Monday. And first thing Tuesday morning, I reported for work in the financial services industry. And so I have been advisor you know, straight out of college from first business day after graduation. Uh, you know, the challenge for me, it, it took uh, a, probably about three or four months for me to figure out that I had not actually taken a financial advisor job. Uh, I had taken a life insurance sales job and I was not a particularly good salesperson. I was a terrible prospector. Uh, you know, this was still the days of cold calling. Like literally I, I had a cubicle and a phone book and a phone and like that was the gig. And uh, I was not long for that world, but, but I really liked just the world of financial advising and helping people. I had the good fortune in that first year to mentor under like the one guy at that life insurance agency who had a CFP certification and he was completely different than everybody else. Everybody else, just the product of the day was variable universal life and everybody went out and sold variable universal life. And there was this one guy, his name was David and David's approach was different. David would just go meet with people 
gather a whole bunch of information about all of their finances and the stuff that was going on, and then just help them with whatever it was that they needed. Like it might be an insurance thing, or it might be a retirement account rollover, or it might be something else. I was like, this just seems easier. Frankly, it wasn't even that I was enamored with financial planning yet. It's like, just this just seems easier where you find out what their problems are and give them what they need instead of just trying to sell variable universal life to every single person you ever meet in your life. So I, that was my introduction to financial planning. I did not last long at the insurance company, but I was really interested in staying in the business. So I ended up finding a job in what today we would probably call like 50% paraplaner, 50% client service manager, like salary job, stable, just sit in the back office and support all this financial planning stuff that was going on. And that was really where I found kind of the, a, a love of the business and the love of financial planning. Like, oh, when you really take a planning centric approach, like everything changes. This is all different. Like this is really meaningful, impactful stuff. And so that, that was when I started getting CFP certification and some of the other designations and degrees that I got. And, you know, it's just kind of been cruising down that road ever since about 10 years on the advisor side. And then the past 10 years, doing more on writing and speaking and creating businesses like XY Plan Network and Advice Pay and try to help the advisor community with Kitsis.com in addition to still keeping one foot in an advisory firm. Well, that's that's so interesting. So I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, you mentioned um, being an advisor and now, that, you know, that's how I know you as the thought leader. Um, I was not aware of CFP programs until I stepped foot onto Michigan State's campus. But I know ever since I've been in, we've been hearing your name, you know, this is the guy you got to listen to. So can you tell us a little bit about um, your path to being a thought leader? How did that come about? And um, what, what was the first idea? What was the first thing that you started writing or podcasting? So, so really, for me, what it started with was, you know, a couple years in, I had a few job changes, you know, take takes a while before you find the firm that's right fit for you, which I actually even warned people like, don't stress too much about finding the right job out of the gate when you're graduating. You will not pick the right one. Like it just doesn't matter. We don't even know what we really like to do until we do it for a while. It's like, oh, I thought I was going to like this, but I like this other thing better. Like your third job is the one that matters. Like your first job will just be where you land. The second job will be the opposite of the first. Like whatever you hate the most about the first job, you'll find a second job that's the opposite end, right? Like I hated selling in my first job. So my second job was 100% salary, no sales like opposite extreme. Third job, you start figuring out like, okay, now I actually know what I want to do in the business. Like I did what I started with. I found out what I liked and didn't like. I took a job at the opposite of the extreme and found more, more stuff that I liked and some things I didn't like. By the third time you find traction. So I was in my third job, which was as director of financial planning for an independent RIA. And it was really doing like deep dive planning for all the clients, we were in a huge growth phase. I was doing a bajillion financial plans for clients. And, you know, like we would get these occasional complex client situations that come up, which when you're doing lots of financial plans, like the hard cases are actually the really interesting ones. The rest get a little bit rote and a little repetitive or boring sometimes. Like, oh, this client's got a cool situation. Like we're, we're going to, I'm going to nerd out on this for a little. So I, I, we would get these occasional complex client situations. I would go deep and nerd out on them. At the end, it's like, okay. I spent an awfully long time on that to help one client, like totally glad with the client that I helped. Like, I feel like this would be helpful to some other people as well. And I just like, I had this itch, like I spent so much time learning this. I need to tell more than just the one client that we help. Like I need someone else to talk to this about. 
And so that turned into uh, writing on message forums because that was kind of the thing back then because we didn't have social media yet. So it was like online message boards. And then that turned into writing for some articles for trade publications. And then that turned into sending my articles into the journal of financial planning. And then that turned into speaking for some uh, like chapters of the Financial Planning Association, like my local study group, my local chapter. And it really just built very incrementally over time. But it start, it really started with nothing more than, look, I just nerded out on this cool thing for a client. And I just really would like to share it with someone else. Like that was way too much time for this to die after like one client. I need to tell more people. Uh, and it was really just the, the compounding of that, that over time was, writing, speaking, launching kitsis.com, launching the Nerds Eye View blog, building a speaking business, launching the podcast, all the other things that really, you know, in some ways, my whole blog and platform is still really just a grandiose version of, I'm just a nerd who likes to nerd out and learn things. And when I learn, I'm like sharing it with others. And so as long as I'm still learning, there's things to share, which means I still have, you know, literally like a list of 300 plus topics to write about for the next blog post, even though I've been doing this for 12 years. Like, I'm still not running out of stuff. There's always more things to learn about. Absolutely. That's, that's so hilarious that you kind of started that just on like working on that one financial plan. And you're like, Oh, I can share this with everybody else. And maybe that helps other advisors. And, and yeah, like no one else should have to go through the amount of research. I just went out through to figure out this like weird AMT thing for a yeah. client. Cause I was a AMT was a big thing at the time. Uh, or just like, I, someone else should have to suffer through the amount of research I just did. Like I right. can tell someone else and save their journey at least. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you saved a lot of people a lot of time throughout the years. So, um, so I want to kind of switch gear or go back a little bit and talk about um, when you were first kind of coming out of college, and get your opinion on what students should be focusing on now coming out and and trying to get into the industry. Does that mean uh, focusing on designations like the CFP or sort of going the broker dealer route, RIA route? Kind of get your opinion on that. So there, there are a few things that I would encourage students as, as you're coming on, kind of where to focus and where not to focus. Um, you know, the, the thing that matters most as you're getting going in your career at financial planning uh, is just getting experience in the industry and doing it. And, you know, this isn't about a pay your dues sort of thing, which I know like a lot of us roll our eyes at. I rolled my eyes out when I was getting going with my career. Like it's not about a pay your dues sort of thing. It's just, this is such a large multifaceted industry. And there's so many different ways you can do this. You put a hundred advisors in the room, you will get a hundred different ways of doing business. I could probably get 117 different ways of doing business because some advisors do more than one thing at once in their own business it takes some time to just figure out what, what you really like doing and what connects with you and what doesn't. Do you really like getting clients? Do you not like getting clients? I started my career. I hated sales. I hated being in business development. I like the first five years of my career was all about finding jobs that would never have business development again. In 2012, I made partner at my firm because I was bringing in so much business. Like the thing I started my career avoiding doing ended up being a major driver in my career 10 years later, but it took 10 years for me to get, like literally it took 10 years for me to get comfortable with any level of business development. So like, we don't even sometimes know or realize what we're going to find that we like or don't like or works for us and doesn't work for us. The only way you find out is by starting to do it. And so 
to me, what that means first and foremost is like, don't focus on finding the perfect job coming out of school. Find a job and just start doing something in the industry. Ideally, if you can, something in a firm that cares about financial planning. So at least you can be in its general vicinity. Uh, that's really about as far as it needs to be out of the gate. So it's really less about being like in an RIA versus a broker dealer. It is much more about, is this a firm that doesn't cares about financial planning? And the way you really figure that out is number one, you know, ask them if they do financial planning. If they say yes, ask for a sample financial plan. Like, can you give me an example of what you give to a client? If they don't even have a sample plan, they probably don't do very much planning. If they have a sample plan and it's literally just the output from the printout of the software, they probably don't focus a whole lot on financial planning. If it looks like they put a little bit of TLC into that plan and like there's something produced there, then they probably care about it a little bit more and this may be a better place. Uh, second, ask them how much of the revenue that they generate is recurring. So not necessarily about fees versus commissions. There are commissions that are level trails that are still actually pretty ongoing and recurring. The reason why it matters is firms that have a lot of one-time revenue, classically that's firms that sell a lot of stuff for commissions. Uh, if every January 1st, as a firm owner, you wake up and your revenue is zero because you, you haven't sold anything yet because all of your income is one time, the only thing you ever really care about at the end of the day is finding the next client and sales opportunity. Like you have to, that's that's all you're paid for. And so those tend not to be firms that have much financial planning focus or even much reinvestment into their staff and their teams. All they care about is new clients. And frankly, if you work there, all they're going to care about is who's your natural market? Who do you know? Can you bring 50 names? All that stuff that our industry does because all they care about is sales. If the majority of their revenue is recurring, that could be assets or management fees, ongoing trails, whatever it is. Then when they wake up on January 1st, the mindset is different. My firm makes a lot of money. All we have to do is not blank this up and give awesome advice and service to our clients. And if that's the mentality of the firm, we have to make sure we give awesome service to our clients. They stick around. Those firms are naturally more service-oriented, more reinvestment-oriented, more advice-oriented, more planning-oriented. And so if they're planning-focused and they're recurring revenue-focused, the odds are pretty darn good that you're gonna have a good opportunity here. And that just, that's where I would start uh, out of the gate. It doesn't matter what the job is. It doesn't matter what the title is. Look, I spent 18 months filling out paperwork and account opening forms as a service, as a client service manager. I didn't do it for five years because I had some aspirations about moving forward to other jobs, but I did it for a year and a half and it was invaluable because I didn't frankly know where I was going to land yet. And it was an amazing experience and I learned a ton. So don't worry about the job, get a job at a firm that's planning oriented, servicing oriented and recurring revenue oriented uh, and, and work on your CFP marks. That would be the other, the other piece that I would add. You know, if you're coming out of your program with your CFP or with your education stuff done already, go sit for the exam uh, within a year of graduation. You won't be able to use the marks yet, by definition, because you don't have the experience yet. It's still worthwhile and very important to do. Uh, firms that are planning-centric increasingly care about the CFP marks. It, it is becoming a requirement for a lot of those best firms. 
And the biggest fear that a firm, like the biggest concern that a firm has when they're thinking about hiring you is not whether you have the marks. It's particularly if you're younger and newer to the business. We know you don't have the marks. You literally haven't been working long enough yet to have the experience to have the marks. What as a hiring manager, and you know, we have a business called New Planner Recruiting that works with firms to hire uh, people coming into these jobs. I can tell you the number one fear that a firm owner has is Costa, like you seem really nice. I, I enjoyed interviewing with you. I enjoyed working with you. You seem like a sharp guy. You come and work with us for three years and it turns out you can't get through the exam. And I'm like, well, crap. Mm. You don't have a future at our firm now. And I and a firm are like, ah, no offense. I feel like I just wasted three years trying to develop you and bring you up only to find out that you can't pass the TFP exam. So if you can come to me and say, Michael, did the education pass my CFP exam? The only thing between these and the marks is the experience that I'm going to get working at your firm. Like, cool, man. Let's get going. Right? right. You you have you have taken the risk off the table for me as the hire as the the firm owner that wants to hire you, and that's a big deal. So even if you won't be able to use the marks yet because you don't have the experience, doesn't matter. Getting the exam done and passing it is a big deal for your hiring and job opportunities, even before you'll be able to use the marks. It really does matter to the firms that you wanna work at the most, which are the ones they're planning oriented and CFP oriented. Right, so it's just about jumping kind of head first into the industry, figuring out what you like, what you don't like. And then, as you said, working on that CFP, basically ASAP, right? Yeah, yeah, you build, build your foundation for it, assuming you're gonna find out in the future what which part you really like and what kind of planning work you really like doing right because it's even when we think we know what it is like cool go try it but you don't have to put 100 percent on your bet into that because you may find there's another part of the industry or another angle to doing financial planning or financial advising that you like better like i started out a sales job hated it went non-sales 10 years later i'm in a business development role i know advisors that started out in planning turns out they like the back office work more than the client facing work i know people who went to client facing work like you know what i actually like scaling a business and developing a team more than actually working with the clients like sometimes you just don't even know but you don't have to figure all that stuff out up front just get in there and start doing it right. at a place that gives a good foundation and has the right values and the right focus and, and you'll find over time where you want to go and what you want to do. And maybe it's at that firm and maybe it's at another firm. That's okay. Mm -hmm. So my second question um, that I want to ask before I pass it off to um, the other Justin in the, in the Zoom meeting um, is about sort of the future of the business. So you touched a little bit about, um, you know, the industry is very multifaceted. A lot of firms do a lot of different things. But where do you see and what are some trends of the business? Are we moving towards just an RIA model? Is the broker-dealer model just becoming sort of extinct? Is it going to stick around? Um, is the fee structure going to be all the same? Is it going to change? Um, what's your opinion on that? So, so a few things I see shifting in flux. The, the first is, frankly, I think we look at this 10 years from now. We're, we're basically not even going to make the distinction between broker-dealers and RAs. They are, they are converging into one. Now, legally, technically, they are separate entities. So what we call the thing of the future, whether we redraw the lines a little, we'll see. But, but this separation of the channels is just not going to exist in, in, in 10 years the way that it does today. Uh, brokerage firms are increasingly running fee-based models that look like RAs. 
RAs are increasingly scaling their own businesses to be larger and larger and look like broker dealers from a platform perspective. There are independent organizations like you know, Dynasty and XY Planning Network that are creating support structure for RIAs that looks just like the support structure for broker dealers. Broker dealers are launching RIA support platforms like Commonwealth and LPL. So just they're all mashing together. Uh, I don't think we're going to make the distinction 10 years from now the way that we do today. The distinction is going to be some, some companies and firms are in the product sales business and some are in the advice business. And the biggest thing to really get clear on is whether you're going to a sales organization or an advice organization. And those will remain separate, but the lines of how we draw them are going to get shifted and redrawn. Uh, what you have to get clear on just as someone coming in is, do you want to be in a sales role or do you want to be in an advice role? And if you want to be in an advice role, make sure you find an advice oriented firm, which is why, you know, all those requirements like, show me your financial plan and what does your revenue mix look like? Because sales oriented firms operate on one-time revenue because that's how salespeople are compensated. Mm -hmm. Advice relationship oriented firms typically run on much more of a recurring revenue model. And, and those sure. are the firms that have the most capacity to just reinvest in their teams and scale and create opportunities for people who go and work there and are looking for long-term career opportunities. Cool. Right. And I'm sure there's going to be even a mix too between the two roles. Even in the advice role, you're going to have to do some sort of sales, like you talked about business development, get new clients and probably vice versa, right? Yeah. The, the difference is what you're selling. Um, right. okay. Product salespeople sell their product. Financial advisors sell themselves. Right. Like you're selling you, right? You hire me and the expertise between my two ears, <laughs> like that. that's what I'm in the business of selling. So Absolutely. Like, you know, full on fiduciary advisors, if you want to grow an advice business, you still have to sell. Mm -hmm. You're selling yourself and not a product. So it feels a little different, but, but you still have to sell in that role. The distinction though, is there are advice roles that have nothing to do with sales, right? We see a growing number of firms, like I got a marketing team that makes the clients come in. Mm -hmm. Your job is to give them awesome financial advice. In sales organizations, that doesn't exist. Right. You know, you sell or you do the paperwork. That's like, those were the only two jobs in insurance companies. Uh, Advice-oriented firms actually have people who are in advice support roles and relationship management roles that have nothing to do with sales and business development. Whether you're selling products or selling yourself, they're just advice roles. And so if that's all you want to do, awesome. You have some opportunities there. If you're inspired towards sales and business development, whether that's selling products or selling yourself, awesome. Frankly, you will have more income upside. Just the business, getting clients is hard. The business pays more for it. Because whether that's you're naturally wired that way or you want to learn that skill or you want to develop that skill over the first 10 years of your career, uh, there is a lot of upside there. But the distinction is in the sales world, you have that or you're gone. In the advice world, that's just a choice and a path and a particularly remunerative path that you can pursue or not. Right. Um, so kind of in the same vein of uh, business development, uh, in the advisory space, particularly in the independent realm, it seems like there are a lot of advisors creating podcasts and other forms of content. Uh, do you believe content creation is the name of the game going forward as far as business development goes in an advisory practice? Um, basically, is, is content creation a skill young advisors should be working on? Um, you know, I would say it's kind of yes and no. Uh, 
obviously I have a particular affinity for content-based marketing strategies since that's my whole world and what we do and certainly how I built my business. Uh, it, it's not the only game in town though. Look, there are there are still firms that build through referrals. There are still firms that build through doing seminars and webinars. And uh, there are still firms that are building their business on direct mail, like sending physical paper mailers to people's houses. It actually still works. Uh, like there's a lot of different ways to build advice businesses. The essence of what most of it comes down to though, is that being effective at, at getting clients is ultimately about being able to demonstrate your expertise and convince someone that hiring you will help them get to their goals or their outcomes or whatever transformation they want to achieve. And so at some point, you do have to show up with your expertise and convince someone that their life will be better by paying you for it. And so we can do that a lot of different ways, right? I can stand up in front of a podium and speak. I can make a slick mailer and send it to your house. I can do a webinar. I can write an article. I can do a podcast. Some of those are content-based. Some of those are more content-based. Some of those are less content-based. Some of those are relationship-driven. Uh, some of those are relationship marketing-driven. There's a lot of different ways I can come at that idea of I got to demonstrate that I'm worth paying and then persuade you that it's worth paying me for that outcome. Content happens to be a great way to show your expertise and that you're a good person to, to work with. It's not the only path, though. So Look, if you are inclined that way by any means, like go for it. I can certainly say, speak from the heart. Like it is a very effective and scalable path to go. Uh, and, you know, look, if you like writing, do it with blogging. If you'd rather talk, do it with podcasting. If you're better in front of an audience, like turn on the camera and make a video and go go live on YouTube or TikTok or whatever the heck it is in the future. Uh Right. There's a lot of different modalities about how you can show your expertise that may connect with you personally if you like that content creation thing. But I know there, there's someone out there that's listening that's like, no freaking way I'm going out there and making content. Like, that is not my thing. That is just not how I'm wired. Like, put me in front of a room where I can work the room. Great. Like, but there's no way I'm sitting in front of a camera or a microphone. Like, if that's how you're wired, it's totally cool. You will be fine. There are other ways to build your business and get out your expertise to establish the relationships and convince people to do business with you. But yeah, if you got any inclination towards content, content marketing is a phenomenally scalable way to go about doing it. And just, you know, as long as the internet is here and this great finding machine of search engines exist, it's amazing who can find their way to your expertise when you just go out there and share your expertise and let people find their way to it. And do you think over time, it's just going to continue to get more and more specific? Like I'm the financial advisor of craft breweries and there's significant like information out there that exists. Like, do you think it's only just going to get richer and richer? Like what exists on the internet? Absolutely. Absolutely. For anybody who's coming into the business today, like you will have to form some kind of specialization, some kind of niche. Now you don't have to pick that from day one. Most advisors, even who end out in niches, they don't start there. They find their way there after three, five, seven, 10 years. And particularly if you're going to come into a firm where you're taking a job of client service support, which then turns into paraplanner, which then turns into support advisor, which then turns into lead advisor with existing clients, like you may not be on the hook for this for five or seven or 10 years or more. So don't, don't stress yourself out earlier than you need to. And if you're you know, going to a firm that's asking for you to bring your 50 people 
from day one, like you are not talking to an advice firm. You are talking to a sales firm that wants you to sell their products. So if you take an advice path with an advice firm and climb an advice ladder, like, yes, you will need to figure that out. But no, you don't have to figure that out anytime soon. You will have a lot of time. It starts with experience. It starts with getting your CFP marks, checking off the box on experience and your CFP marks. By the time you get there, you'll start finding something that's more interesting. Like maybe you're like me and you're like nerding out on tax stuff. Maybe you're more interested in student loan planning. Maybe you want to get into investment stuff. You'll pursue another designation that takes you deeper down that route. You'll start working with some clients who appreciate that designation and expertise you start inching down that path. And then seven years later, it's like, oh, I guess I'm actually pretty deep with this group. I think I'm going to focus my career here going forward. So absolutely, I think the future becomes ever more focused because it's 300,000 financial advisors. Like you got to have some way to stand out from all the other people who are going to be coming at clients with something as well. And the amazing thing about the advice business, when you drill down to it, most wonderfully successful advisors still have no more than about 100 active clients. Even the guys have been doing it forever and have like 372 clients. Like, yeah, but 270 other you haven't talked to in like five years. They're your client because you made an IRA for them in 2007 and haven't talked to them since. Like active clients is rarely more than 100, maybe 125. And a lot of advisors have wonderfully successful businesses with no more than 50 great clients. And the reality is when you need 50 great clients and there's 300 million people in this country and 7 billion people on the planet, like you can go as insanely narrow as you want. There's still going to be space. Like we had a guy on our financial advisor success podcast. His niche is bass fishermen, <laughs> not even all fishermen. Cause that would be too broad, right? <laughs> Just bass fishermen. And it sounds like a crazy thing, but he's 39 years old. He has $120 million under management and 90% of his clients are bass fishermen. Wow. So it's amazing how focused you can get when 50 great clients is all it takes for an, for an amazing business. So you should have that in mind for the long run, but that is the long run. Day one is find a job, find it at a firm that cares two bits about advice, Get your CFP marks, get your exam done. So at least you'll get your CFP marks when you get your experience requirement and just be focused on learning and accumulating the experience. You know, when, I, when we look and we do a lot of research on this from the, from the Kitsis platform, when we look at what, what, uh, what is most predictive of an advisor's uh, financial success in the business, the overwhelming dominant number one factor is the number of years they've been doing it. It's literally just time. Uh, and I know we're getting started. That's a whole like, damn it, I don't have time. Like I'm getting started now. Like what's the, what's the shortcut? Uh, there aren't a lot of shortcuts. I mean, there are some, we got a lot of articles about it on the blog, but uh, like there are some ways that you can move it forward. But at the end of the day, like advisor success comes in over time because this is much more of a marathon than a sprint. It's a business about relationships. It's a business about growth. It takes so time for us to grow. It takes time for us to get relationships. You know, I have, you know, I, uh, one of the biggest client uh, prospect opportunities I ever had was a guy I went to college with 20 years ago. And it turns out over the past 20 years, uh, you know, I went the financial advising route he went the route of a company that started up, ended out IPOing and making a bajillion dollars. And he was one of the first 10 employees. 
So I wasn't going to get him for 20 years because that's how long it took for him to go and do his thing and follow his journey before I got the phone calls, the old college buddy. It's like, hey, we should connect because there's some things happen in my life and I've got an opportunity now. So like there's stuff that just happens with time. Our relationships build, our networks build, the people we know come into opportunities. We get established, we get known in our communities, we get known for our expertise, we go deeper in that direction and all of it compounds all of it compounds, right? The If you want to save a million dollars by age 65, all it takes is 300 bucks a month, $10 a day. You can pull out a financial calculator to verify it. Like that's literally all it takes. A million dollars when you retire is $10 a day. And a stupidly large amount of compounding. <laughs> and Building a financial advisor career very much follows the same track. And of course, the frustrating thing about compounding is all the growth comes at the end when the compounding really picks up. So setting your foundation and staying in the game so that the compounding can happen is the most important thing. That's why like the number one thing I push against for people when they're getting started is avoiding those sales jobs. Not because it's bad to sell per se. If you want to be successful in getting your own clients, you will have to learn how to do that. Uh, or you'll be in a salary job where someone else hands them to you. Uh, it's not about being bad at sales, but most of us are not great at sales coming straight out of school. And if you fail in the first year, you never get to the 30th year of compounding or the 20th or the 10th. So finding the jobs that keep you in the game are the most important thing. And then taking the steps along the way so you give a nudge towards positive compounding and it's amazing how time compounds in your favor as you build experience and relationships. Um, I just finished reading The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. And I know it was like Warren Buffett, 80, he's worth like $85 billion. And he accumulated 82 billion of it after his 75th birthday, something like that. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? Like, I think that to me is one of the most incredible examples. Uh, just Buffett's accumulation. Like as much as we talk about all his wealth, like, I'm not even sure he was a billionaire yet by 65. Yeah, I don't think so. It's like, you know, spend 40 years getting to a billion and then 20 more getting to 80 billion. Like just, it, it's how compounding works. So uh, very frustrating in the early years, right? We've, anybody who's compounded has been there, but the only way you get to the long-term result is staying in the game. And so finding those opportunities and roles where you can stay in the game and get some experience and keep adding that's what lets the compounding add up. Awesome. Um, I know I want to be respectful of your time here. This has been amazing. There's so much insight in here, but what we like to leave it, we like to open the floor up to our guests here. So is there anything maybe we didn't cover today, Michael, that you would like uh, college students to know who are looking to break into the financial planning space? I, I think I'll just say at a high level, like it is, it's an amazing opportunity. It's an amazing business. I know there's a bunch of media out there of like, fee compression and robots are coming and all this stuff. Uh, like it, it's just not accurate. You know, tech companies say tech is the future because they're in the tech business. Uh, when you look at how this is actually playing out, like it, it just doesn't, it just doesn't happen that way. And, you know, to me, like the quintessential example of this. So if you dial the clock back 40 years ago, actually it's almost 50 years ago now in the 1970s, we first introduced the, uh, the ATM which for those who aren't familiar, like it's literally short for automated teller machine. Like it was a robo teller so that you wouldn't need tellers at the bank anymore. 
And the fear at the time was robo-tellers were going to obliterate teller jobs for the very obvious reason that we literally made a robot teller to replace the tellers. Then if you actually look at the jobs for bank tellers over the past 40 years, it didn't go down for 40 years. There were 400,000 bank teller jobs in the 1970s and almost 40 years later, still 400,000 bank teller jobs on the top of the fact that we made almost a million ATMs. And so it's not that the robots didn't come, it's that the humans didn't go away. And what actually ended up happening was that, look, if you were a bank in the 1970s, it was very expensive to open up a bank branch because you need a lot of people just to man the bank. Uh, when ATMs came along, suddenly instead of needing like five people to staff a bank, you could have two people and two ATMs, which made it economical to open up bank branches in cities and towns that had never had a local bank before. And so the number of tellers in each bank really did go down exactly as predicted. But the number of bank branches more than doubled and more than made up for it because the opportunities that came because the market got bigger, the pie got bigger when the technology made it more efficient. And I see very much the same thing happening in real time in our financial advisor world. Yes, there are things that we do as today as advisors that we did in the past 10 years that will go away. Like it will get automated. The computers will do that. But that just means we end up doing different things that are more valuable. And when we get that much more efficient, we can serve more consumers and the pie gets bigger. And so don't fear like the wave of robots and automation, all the rest. At the end of the day, money is a very human business. It's a very human thing, right? It's one of the most crucial resources. We have to have it survive. Like you literally can't survive and function in the world if you cannot effectively manage your money and your cash flow. It's a very personal business. It's one of the only taboo subjects left, right? We can talk about religion, sex, and politics more faster than we can talk about money right now. Uh, and so the, like, I couldn't be more upbeat about the opportunities in the advice business. So it's a wonderful, amazing career. Just set yourself a foundation for success because it is a marathon and not a sprint. Awesome. Michael Kitsis, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate the opportunity. If you liked what you just heard, please like, comment, and share. This is Vincent Pacillo, producer of the MSU WMA podcast. MSU WMA, or Michigan State University Wealth Management Association, is a student organization part of the Eli Broad College of Business located in East Lansing, Michigan. Our mission is to inspire and educate the next generation of financial planners. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please check out our channel on all platforms such as Spotify and Apple Podcast, and check out our social media at MSU WMA and MSUWMA.com.